0: Welcome to the heavenly banquet. This is Charlotte. I've got Chad with me again so that we can chat a little bit about theology with you. Today, we are going to be talking about some historical atonement theories. Chad, what are we talking about?
1: Hi, Charlotte. Um, yeah, atonement theories. So the word atonement means to bring two things together. In general, it means to bring two things together. In theology, atonement theories are about how does God bring, reconcile humanity and God. How does God bring about that union? Most atonement theories are interested in how the cross and resurrection achieve that union. Um, with maybe an exception or two, so if the goal of the cross and resurrection is union, then that event is is somehow a mechanism to make that happen. And I think that's one a helpful way to think about atonement theories. They're trying to
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, nail down the mechanism that brings about union between God and humanity.
0: You said nailed down. So. The, the, but yes, okay. That's, so that's how, a freebie. <laughs> so yeah, okay, great. So we're talking about uh, yeah. So what happens? What we're trying to understand it, trying to uh, shake it out. How how is it that this is achieved? Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that we do as we go through these. Uh, let's give them a star rating. Let's do um, one to five. One to, one five, to five stars. Okay. on each of these, see how we're feeling about them. Um, so I want to start us off with kind of this big group of theories. We're going to call uh, Christus Victor. Uh, so these are some of the earliest, early church really pretty much obsessed with this idea. And it's, it has biblical basis, too. Paul mentions um, some, of, some of this kind of language. So we're looking at all of this language around... Christ destroying death, Christ destroying sin, Christ destroying the devil, uh, Christ being victorious over powers um, and being able to bring us back. Um, And then sort of a prime example of this would be the ransom theory. Uh, We see this in origin in the early third century. I'm going to talk a little bit more, though, about uh, the way that Gregory of Nyssa describes it. So I'm now late 4th century friends. Uh, so this is the fishhook idea here. The, the, the broader theological context is that the wages for sin is death or um, hell, um, servitude to the devil, these kinds of things, right? K- kind of... Um, Synonyms in some ways, analogous in some ways, but also different language used here. Um, And so the idea is that in this Christ event, uh, we have a sinless one who dies. And Mm -hmm. if death, if hell, if the devil tries to trap it, then it's fooled and has to vomit up, not just Christ, but (laughs) all of us. Right? So. As Gregory says, uh, the deity was hidden under the veil of our nature, in human nature, that so as with ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, and thus life being introduced into the house of death, and light shining in the darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish, for it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or of death to exist when light life is active. So sort of the opposite of hell crashes into hell, the opposite of death, life itself crashes into (laughs) death and obliterates it. Um, so this is the mechanism where we, we get this language of Christ destroying death, Christ destroying hell. Um, John Chrysostom's Easter sermon this is like right around the year 400. This is my favorite sermon ever. I don't think anyone should have written another Easter sermon after this. Uh, and I use it kind of in the beginning of Easter services as part of a proclamation. But this is a little snippet out of it, which is also speaking of this ransom theory. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw And was overcome by what it did not see. Mm, That's fantastic. Uh, Isn't it? (laughs) So in the longer portion, (laughs) you guys, you can look it up. It's available like anywhere. Um, It just goes on and on like that. And usually more than one person gasps somewhere during it when you read it. Because it's just, you don't hear it in such plain language. So I think that's, for me, like one of the strengths of this theory is that it's um, mm-hmm. just down to Christ destroyed death, Christ destroyed hell, uh, Christ has destroyed mm-hmm. sin, etc. Um, it, and it's very powerful. Uh, it's also a very powerful depiction of God. I think it's the kind of God that we see uh, in things like the Passion narrative. I mean, excuse mm-hmm. me, the Passover uh, narrative, as far as this hero redeeming his people. Uh, I think that's really compelling. On the other end of it, uh, problematic for me, is also this idea of God as sort of Liam Neeson, right, coming in to rescue us, because it's uh, fraught with some dualism, right, that the devil, that hell, that death are actually powers that God has to encounter in some way. Um, so we have some some issues there, um, although... These depictions, as we've just looked at the actual language used here, is more just any encounter is just going to obliterate those things because they're nothing, right? So death can stand can't has uh, no bearing to stand when encountering life itself. You know, uh, darkness cannot exist without light. So it's not quite the cosmic battle one might make it out to be. The only other issue that I really kind of have with it is really with the fish hook stuff um because it makes god out to be a kind of trickster um and yeah. it's sort of a liar and i'm not comfortable with with that and particularly since it's we worship one who says its his name is truth uh so yeah
1: uh,
0: what's what's quite with this so any what thoughts any thoughts on your mind about this
1: yeah so i mean the it looks like it developed over time. So initially it starts out with this ransom. So God is essentially paying a ransom to the devil to free humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. Humanity sells themselves to the devil in the Garden of Eden, apparently. And then it kind of shifts from ransoming us, humanity, from the devil, which is just weird that God, right? That's just weird. God doesn't know anybody, anything. So that's, I don't know. But then ransoming us from from death, that makes a little more sense, I think, you know, or from these death and physical corruption and, and all of that, so that it, it kind of just becomes victory. And I do like the whole, you know, victory idea that God is overcoming the things that keep us from becoming what God created us to be. That That's attractive to me, very much so. Yeah. It's a very positive yeah. account. So I, I, yeah. wish, I, can I give it a rating? Yes, you may. I'm gonna give it a, I'm gonna give it a four, Charlotte.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. I yeah. think. Oh, uh, I, um, <laughs> I think I want to give it a four too. I think I want to give it a four too.
1: Four point two. Um,
0: a 4.2? Yeah, four point two. I want a little bit look. better. Ha <laughs> ha gotcha. Uh yeah, a four as well. Um okay. Okay, good. Okay. Um, uh, one other one that we'll mention, you mentioned earlier, Chad, that you know, they're not all entirely centered on the cross, right? So and we'll mm-hmm. see some, especially in the um Eastern Church, we're not gonna really talk about today, but that are focused way more on the incarnation and this event of actually just the union of uh, God and humankind in this person of Christ—that that's already reconciliation begun, actually within the Theotokos. Then, right? Um, All right. But so leaning toward in the Eastern direction there, uh, Irenaeus, and we're late second century now. Uh, this idea of recapitulation. Um, so Christ is the new Adam. We've got that language in Paul. Uh, but Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where Adam failed Um, so then Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did and because of Christ's union with humanity because Christ is fully human and fully divine then we all participate in and reap the benefits of that and that that's going to lead us to eternal life what do you think about that?
1: Um, I like, so, so this is basically saying that the incarnation does the work, whatever work needs to be done, that by the second person becoming human and living the life and going through death and rising again, it brings everything to where they ought to be, I guess. I mean, that word recapitulation means to bring everything under one, one principle. So in this sense, that principle would be Christ. Right. So, yeah, it's not focused on the cross or the resurrection, but the whole bag, I guess. Yeah. Is that kind of the idea?
0: Yeah. So, I think one of the benefits of this is that it includes the whole life of Christ, right? If if all of these are centered just on the cross, then why not just get to it? You know? So, I mean, so there's an example here of, right, so he's obedient in the way that Adam is he's living out the commandments in the way that Adam didn't um so the whole the whole life matters that way in a way that is kind of dismissed in some of the yeah. other atonement theories i think
1: yeah and so the whole point of the atonement theory is how does god bring union between god and humanity so the incarnation itself is how that union yeah, that's nice. And, of course, it's Irenaeus who has that f- famous well-worn statement, or used to be well-worn. We don't say it much anymore. But this idea that Christ became like us so that we might become like him. Right. You know, which I think captures it nicely. Okay. I like it.
0: Okay. Uh, I, think, I think I'm think i going to sit on four stars with this one as well.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm going on with
0: four. Okay. So basically this Christus Victor and a little bit of recapitulation is our dominant theories, variations on them, but dominant in the West. I'm going to admit that we're pretty much only talking about the West around here, but uh, yeah. in the West until uh, high medieval period, right? When uh, our best friend in the universe, Anselm stops on by <laughs> and, and what does he have to say? Help us do
1: this. Anselm of Canterbury, uh, 11th century. Uh, He wrote a treatise. What's the Latin? Yeah, "Cur deus homo, which basically means why the God human? Uh, Why the incarnation? So this is uh, Anselm's theory. He begins by saying that We owe a debt of obedience to God, right? Um, To disobey God is sin. But to disobey God is not only sin, but it also dishonors God. So now we owe a double debt, right? Right. Not only do we owe the debt of obedience, but we owe the debt of dishonoring God,
0: like sin is a payday loan the interest is so high
1: i mean so, right so
0: it's not just the thing yeah. it's not just the debt that's incurred something else but in, in something this case, else Connor, sorry. interest of yeah. some sort yeah yeah and i mean
1: the thing is i mean just think about how this would work practically speaking you know if you if you mess up on tuesday we you can't go mm-hmm. back on wednesday to make it up because you have you owe a debt on wednesday i mean it just you can see how it how how it compounds itself. The other thing Anselm says is God cannot just forgive the debt. Either the debt must be repaid or there must be punishment. And he even explains why he thinks punishment is necessary if the debt can't be repaid. Uh, According to Anselm, punishment restores God's honor because it us back in our place essentially, it subjects mm-hmm. us, which is what we should have been doing in obedience, right? Um, so it must be repaid or there must be punishment. Um, he says we can't repay the debt, kind of what we just mentioned that if you if you mess up on Tuesday, you can't go back and make up for that because you have a debt you have to owe for each moment. But more than that, he says that. When we disobey, it incapacitates our ability to obey, right? I guess that's kind of his head nod to original sin or something. So what do we need? Well, we need someone of infinite goodness who can act as a human on behalf of humanity, i.e. the incarnated Christ, the incarnated second person. And so this is what Anselm says is happening at the cross. Well, first of all, Jesus is obedient. So in his life, he fulfills that first obligation of obedience. God uh, tells Christ or requests that he die for humanity, to which Christ is obedient to that. But that obedience goes above and beyond the, the call of duty, so to speak.
0: Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. So so what's happening at his death is he's accruing all this extra the word is supererogatory. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. He, he he um through his death achieves all this extra honor and that honor is essentially he pays back the the, dis, the the debt of honor we owe God from our dishonor. that's essentially how it works. So so it satisfies God's honor. Right. Hence why it's called the satisfaction theory. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
0: I don't like Let it. What do you
1: think about that? You don't <laughs> like it? Why not?
0: You knew I didn't like it. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, it's really dependent upon this f- feudal system, right? He's just transplanted right. his the economic system, the hierarchical social hierarchical system of his own time onto this. Um, So, it's foreign both to first century Palestine, um, Mm -hmm. to anything in scripture, as well as being completely foreign to our own context. So, we've got some problems there, I think. Also, this depiction of God as somebody whose, like, honor is such a big deal is, like, I think makes God seem really weak, honestly. You know, that... Petty,
1: Petty, almost.
0: Yeah, that it can't take an insult or an affront. And I don't mean I don't mean that y'all to like dismin- it, diminish uh, the problem of sin, but the addition of like, but oh, but ah, oh, but it also hurt my feelings, or you know, this honor thing. I think is is really an issue. I also, you know, the deal with the punishment being necessary to maintain order mm-hmm. or the hierarchy of the world is. Uh, uh, yeah, that's not how we maintain order, the order of right. creation through subjugation, um, and punishment and making everybody in their place. I just see this as, as just in every turn ending up in a really problematic place, both in this sort of abstract theology and then any application of it just, um, mm-hmm. Being nasty. And I I just don't like this depiction of God as being this um, kind of petty, vengeful um, punisher here. What? How about you?
1: Yeah. I love it. Some of this.
0: I mean, it's like all you talk about.
1: No, (laughs) I don't. No, I don't. I mean, I think it's obvious he's uh, superimposing his experience onto it. Which okay, you can't necessarily fault them for that. I just think it's a it's a bad framework to try to understand what what God is doing. Um, and like you you mentioned, I, I think it leads itself to uh, you know it, it, how we look at God and how we look at the cross and how we look at all that is going to have an effect on how we treat other people. I think, and you know, yeah. something like this is is bound to uh like you like you said um have some unfortunate nasty side effects in the way people i don't know so you i know. also
0: think you know this is an example of that I mean, we're not to aquinas yet quite yet but this yeah this place that academic theology, medieval theology goes, where it just tries too hard. It's just speculative at this point. I mean, you know, he's, he makes a compelling argument. If you read the work, I mean, he's really trying to lay out this logically and to take this as a really serious logical exercise, but you end up so far away from, um, anything you can really grasp from scripture or, uh, you know, a, a, another foundation. It's really kind of a house of cards in my mind, too. Yeah. That he's built yeah. up. It's,
1: his argument in the treaties is, you know, logically tight, but he's assuming all kinds of things, particularly the whole yeah. honor set up with God. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... Um, the satisfaction theory, that's Anselm. You want me to go ahead and talk about Calvin? Because they're so I would related, love, I think.
0: Yeah, I know. I'd love for you to do that.
1: Okay. So that was Anselm's <laughs> satisfaction theory. John Calvin, this is 16th century reformer. Um, his is usually referred to as the penal substitution theory. A couple of things about Calvin. The first is he was trained a lawyer. And you'll definitely see because his, his theory of atonement is essentially kind of a courtroom penal way of looking at it. But the other thing about Calvin is, um, and I'll kind of use some of his own language. You know, Calvin says that the difference between God and humanity is so great. Um, and, and the language he uses, the difference between God's purity and our uncleanness is so great that even if we never sinned we would still need a mediator I'll just say something about that right quickly because I think please there's a yeah there's I think a category mistake that happens in his thinking along those lines so I think I think we definitely have to say that the I'll use this word and then I'll, I'll say what I'm say what I'm saying The ontological distinction, meaning that the kind of being that God is and the kind of beings that we are are radically different, even though we're created Mm -hmm. in the divine image. So there is this huge gap ontologically in the kind of beings that we are. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't but this whole purity uncleanness language, that's coming from somewhere else. That's yeah, you know. Just because we're ontologically distinct and less than, you know, we're finite, God's infinite, so on and so forth. That doesn't mean we're trash.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know I, th- I, mean? I think we're the word dirty. was good. I think the word was yeah, good. Yeah. That God... <laughs> so, Not you know, whoopsie. for Calvin,
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It really degrades the goodness of God's creation, that kind of thinking. So he he just starts off, on, I think, on a bad note. So here's his theory. And of course, again, keep in mind, he's a lawyer. And it's pretty simple. Um, Unlike Anselm, who believes that through the cross, God is satisfying God's honor, for Calvin, it's satisfying God's justice. That when we sin, we become criminals, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that sin incurs God's wrath. And of course, that language of God's wrath you know, by the time you get to Jonathan Edwards and his sermon, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, that's that's penal substitution full blown. Yeah. Um, so sin must be punished or a penalty paid. So, in other words, somebody's got to be punished for what, for sin. And of course, the idea is that um, Christ is punished in our place and uh, absorbs God's wrath on our Behalf, as Calvin puts it, Christ presents our flesh as the price of satisfaction for God's um, satisfy God's wrath. He pays the penalty we deserve. And, you know, Calvin was real big on Isaiah fifty three, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah. You know, he bore our afflictions, he was wounded for our transgressions, smitten by God. He, he likes that language a lot. The other thing for Calvin, I think that's important to point out, is for him, the atonement is limited. Christ doesn't die for humanity's sins. He dies for the few who will be chosen to be saved. So. hmm What do you think about that, Charlotte? I hate it. <laughs> I hate
0: it. I'll tell you. I mean, it's. do you think it is too reductive to say that he's kind of copied Anselm's work? But use, is using the language of the court system over the feudal system that if we could, you know, just sort of replace honor with justice, then yeah, you
1: know,
0: we're not too far off there. I know be. somebody's probably sure. screaming, depending on who's listening. Oh, to yeah. This. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's it. It may be one just one the, the way I presented it. I would give. Well, I mean, uh, kind of what I remember familiar with it, too. But um we didn't give uh Anselm any ratings last time we skipped the I think I'd oh, give him a two. I'm I'm gonna be this is really generous. I'm gonna give him a two because he did a lot of work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he makes a good argument.
0: I'm gonna give him an extra yeah, like effort. an ex more an extra more one more star than he deserves because he's kinda out on his own doing something. So you can have that, buddy. Um
1: Yeah. You know, and I'll I'll have to say this for Calvin. I like a lot of what Anselm says about other things. Calvin, too. But I just, yeah. I'll go ahead and give Anselm a one.
0: Okay. I'm going to give Calvin no stars. (laughs) Because, because, first of all, I think he copied somebody else's work. Um. (laughs) second, this uh, this idea of, I mean, the idea of God's honor in Anselm is silly to me. Mm -hmm. I have the same problems with the way that God's justice is presented here. I think it's supposed to be more relatable, but I think it's far worse. Because first of all, justice here is really only understood as being punitive, right? It's not, it's ultimately Restorative. restorative or uh reconciling but it's through a punitive measure somebody has to suffer somebody has to pay mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that uh, there's a score to be settled here right um and that's not how i think we should understand justice i'm just, I don't think it's how i understand god and mercy and grace which have seemed to gone somewhere else i'm I know calvin would would place that within the still within the work of Christ, the fact that God is trying to do this is grace. Um, but I think it's problematic. I think it's also problematic because uh, because of all this language of justice being something that somebody has to pay for or somebody has to suffer for uh, mm-hmm. to restore is that we literally see that played out in our own justice system, you know, where. Mm-hmm. We're not asking questions about, um, you know, why why the poor are suffering and maybe led, you know, to to theft or such to survive, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and these these much deeper issues than just you do something, you owe something, and I kind I have a problem too with this language around. Even, you know, payment or debt or something owed because it's also now like God is ransoming us from God's self. (laughs) I mean, is is it not? That's so twisted, yeah. You were disobedient and so you owe me something, but now I have to figure it out? Well, hey, dude. Like... And you guys, I, Did create I use, <laughs> yeah, why can't you get us, you get us out of it, right? Like, yeah. how are you trapped in your own, um, uh, in your own system? So again, it makes, it makes God seem really weak to me, weak. um, that there's, there's this courts, there's this court and legal system that even God can't navigate. I don't know, maybe that's more relatable in some ways, um, I think it's problematic. So no stars.
1: No That's stars for, for Calvin. Yeah, it's it's you know, well again, just like Anselm, he's superimposing his experience on uh the cross and resurrection. And again, I mean I guess we all do that to some extent, but it's just a it's a horrible, horrible and like you said, God looks weak. The other thing and this bothers me both about Anselm and Calvin is there is absolutely no grace involved. The penalty is paid. There's no forgiveness. God isn't forgiving anything. God is exacting a pound of flesh for a pound of flesh. Um, And you know, the whole idea about justice in my mind, and I think scriptures bear this out. Ultimately justice is about flourishing life. Chris's victor, satisfies God's justice. This just makes yeah. God into a, a tyrant that uh, tortures people, which is odd. Uh, yeah. So I give it, uh, I was going to give it a half star, and I thought that was going to be the lowest one, but you you, under, you undercut me with no stars. I'll give him a half star just because uh, he tried. Oh, and the other thing, let's just say this. This particular theory, penal substitution, is like the most common theory that I see a lot of um, evangelicals, should I? Or
0: yeah, American maybe, evangelicals, sure.
1: American, yeah. yeah they, they, they. No, I'm glad to you mentioned that. This is the only way to look at it. And obviously that doesn't, this idea doesn't even show up until the 16th century. So that can't be right. And, you know, here's well, the other thing that we've never had church councils to determine an atonement theory.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think I think they though would say that like nobody had it right until this comes on the scene. So what's the point of anything else? Um, yeah. I-, I think that's one of the reasons too, that I'm in- even more inclined to if I could lean toward negative stars, I would. (laughs) Because when we're talking about Anselm or some of the other ones, and we're talking about places where things are problematic or could lead to maybe toxic or abusive applications, I know what they are with the way that those folks have used this one. And it is for things like advocating for the death penalty and advocating for really harsh uh, justice systems and for seeing the whole world, that's too much, Charlotte, but for for really seeing things far more black and white with this idea of, you know, there's right and there's wrong, and there's no um, complicated world that we're all trying to navigate in some way, um, that they've used this penal, uh, this atonement theory kind of cover colors all of the rest of the theology in some way and who they think God is and mm-hmm. this idea that anything, anything else is an affront to God or you know, you have to protect God's idea of justice and it's mm. harsh and cruel and um, not, not a deity that I think I could uh, sell somebody else to get to worship, you know, either mm-hmm. who acts this way
1: yeah i mean if if the deity is gonna go around punishing folks, why not the followers you know
0: yeah yeah right
1: well is there any is there any hope Charlotte, for a better atonement theory?
0: <laughs> well, I have one more I think we should mention um and this is coming from Abelard so we're in we're in Paris now. Uh, in the mid 12th century and okay. i guess it you know we got to mention that this particular uh theory that he's advancing uh was condemned um by church councils and got him excommunicated at one point um but it's been, it keeps coming back though because it has a lot of fans and i'm going to be one right now um <laughs> And he's writing in direct opposition to Anselm, you know, because Anselm is, you know, still the hot, hot new thing that everybody's talking about and everyone's latched onto. They love the logic of it. They love the way that he's um, uh-huh. mapped this thing out. Um, but Abelard has a problem with this this personality of God that's depicted within Anselm, in particular, um, as this kind of vengeful, wrathful. Um, persnickety guy who can't deal with you know, insults to his honor and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, and that's not who Abelard believes that God is. Um, so this is commonly referred to as a moral influence theory of atonement, and it's understanding the cross as a demonstration of God's love. Um, that it mm. through this demonstration. Um, then we're changed. Our hearts and our minds are changed that that the cross is this instrument that is going to call us to repentance, Um, that we see this absolutely, uh, completely unique and horrific act of evil that we've undertaken Um, and a God who is willing to undergo that to be with us And it's Mm -hmm. supposed to transform us that way. Um, I'm going to say, I mean, right off the bat, I think I'm going to say some other things I like about this. I like that this is the only one that is really out to transform us. That we're the problem and we're the instrument that needs to be changed. And it's not God Uh doing all of the work. Right? So it's relevatory. It's the same God you know, from the beginning of creation, the same God who has always been calling mm-hmm. out to say, I'm your God and you will be my people. Um, I created you no. for my love and I will love you. Um, coming and saying, coming to be with us. And then this awful thing happens where our Creator shows up within creation and we murder our own God. Um, Lord have mercy. (laughs) We said, do you know how really awful we can be? Check it out. Um, And that by looking into that as the supreme um, depth of human uh, sin and depravity, and that God's response to that is love and life even that um -hmm. Mm -hmm. should transform us uh, in a very real way he's not just saying oh you kind of think a little different but thinking different having a transformed heart and mind is a transformation of person and that when confronted with that you will have you will act different you will be changed
1: i like that i like that And I have to be honest, I didn't used to like Abelard's moral influence theory because I didn't think it had a mechanism, Mm -hmm. you know, um, with with at least aspects of the ransom theory and the satisfaction theory and the penal substitution theory that Cross is doing something. And, of course, that goes back to your you were mentioning about this dualism that, you know, it's like God has to overcome something that is potentially stronger than God or something or what? Right. But obviously the you know, the resurrection shows that nothing compares to this God. You know, this is the God that brings things to into existence that don't exist and raises the dead. There's what what are you gonna do with that? You know? So maybe there doesn't need to be a mechanism. God is doing what God has always been doing. And, but revealing that to us is significant and transformative, revealing that love, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So I have to, I like the more influence theory more as we've been looking at these than I, I did previously, which is pretty astounding that I've changed my mind on that. I like a few of them. I don't like satisfaction or penal substitution. Yeah. I give it. Yeah.
0: I, so, uh, yeah, we should mention that, too. Uh, you know, you don't pick one. Right. So they're kind of a melange of, of theories out there. And we may lean, find ourselves leaning more into one or the other based on kind of usefulness, how they're informing what we do, how they... A, some of them better accord with certain portions of scripture etc so um the they don't have to compete with one another either in that way right. I like I like this one though I mean you know yeah I think you' f- you can fault it because it doesn't have like a mechanism or hasn't gone into some detailed narrative about like what and how uh, i think uh-huh. that's actually a strength of it though um because do we need to know how the sausage is made you know i mean it's like too then then we really are into speculative territory uh-huh. right so this view of god of being love and life and mercy and kindness and Uh, you know, accords with the proclamation we see throughout scripture, accords with what we see through the life of Christ, and accords with this sort of continuous uh, revelation of the divine personality throughout scripture. Uh, I think that's a real strength of it, because it's also not, we're not getting into the trouble, you know, some of the first few century theologians got into with, like, this is totally radical and new and God's never done anything like this before sort of thing. Um, and it is, it's unique and special, but it's also um, very much more in a continuum that you can see, or I can then, than some of the other schemes, let's say, or theories in that way. Mm. Um, and if we're saying, you know, that the content of preaching of both, John the B- Baptizer and Jesus is repentance, is to change hearts and minds than to say that, well, what what else should this event um, produce but changed hearts and minds? Um, so, there's yeah. some according, nice. some fittingness there, too, that I think is important that that isn't, again, as dismissive in some ways of the life of Christ as some of the other Theories are going to, you know, kind of don't need that. And here here we see um, this being a final revelation in some ways.
1: How many stars? Four. Five.
0: What? This is unprecedented. We have
1: a winner. We have a winner. Well,
0: four is a winner for me, but five. Wow. Wow. You're not even leaving room for yourself to top it?
1: No goodness,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a four and a half, so you could be five. No, I'm kidding. No, I mean I like this a lot. I'm sure I'm gonna. Somebody's gonna yell at me and find some a lot of reasons why I shouldn't like it. And I mean I've seen some objectives ob- objections to it, but I'm mm-hmm. uh, I really like this idea of it just being sort of revelatory. And I think there's something. You know, we talked about how the um, Anselm and Calvin are using sort of their experiences uh, and supplanting those on top of atonement theories, etc. cetera. Um, I think uh-huh. this is more broadly experiential too, of you know, being confronted. You know, whether it's Good Friday. Or Easter, or um, any time that we're telling the Passion narrative, of um, how that story demands a visceral reaction, demands a response um, that's more than you know a cosmic transaction about debts and penalties and honor and things like this. But but that we're transformed yeah. when we're confronted by it and. Shouldn't that be the goal?
1: Yeah. I like it.